Happy Easter. Alleluia. Man, it feels good to be able to say that again. Alleluia. And Easter is what today's episode with Bishop Frank Caggiano is all about. Well, let me be frank today. His Excellency will give us reflections on Easter and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he's going to talk about Easter traditions uh, here in the States uh, in general, and then also Easter traditions for the Caggianos. So keep your radio right here at 1350 AM and 103.9 FM, or keep us on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. You can get the app at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or VeritasCatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad, the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce the great Bishop Frank Caggiano. Great. Ooh, that's, that's hyperbole. But anyway, <laughs> happy Easter to you, my friend. Yay! Happy Easter. Happy Easter. <laughs> the Lord is risen. He is, he is risen indeed. Risen. Hallelujah. So, what would you like to talk about? I, I want to I talk about Easter. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. I, um, there, there's many angles by which we could enter into what's con- really what we consider to be the fundamental or what the catechism calls in Article 638, the crowning truth of our faith in Christ, which is the proclamation of the resurrection of the Lord. But what I was thinking of doing is talking about First, from a theological point of view, what is it that we believe? Talk about a bit about the traditions of Easter, particularly those in the United States, that secular culture has in some way, unfortunately, usurped as it did for Christmas, right? And then we can talk about more of our our own personal experiences. How's that sound? Sounds great. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... The very first thing I think for us to, to, and a lot of this comes out of the catechism, and I would ask those who are listening to perhaps go into the catechism. It begins in Article 626 and go through the articles and just read them because, of course, they're very concise. They're faithful to what we believe, obviously, but also they're revelatory. Some of the things that are said in those articles are worth meditating on. The catechism is actually can be a source of great reflection and prayer. So for example, in order to understand the resurrection and what happens on Easter, we already spoke about the death of Christ the last time we were together. But we do have to pause once again with the descent among the dead, the Holy Saturday experience. And the reason why that's important is because it highlights a very important fact which has implication in human anthropology, has implications in its application in things as current as gender ideology, all the rest. And that is the divine person of the second person of the Blessed Trinity, 
the divine person of Jesus Christ, possessed both a human soul and a human body. And we say that in death, the soul separates from the body. And therefore for us, because we are sinners, our body is subject to corruption. But the soul is eternal. And when we rise from the dead and please God judged worthy after purgation of entering into eternal life, we will then be fully glorified body and soul, this time now with our body glorified to reflect the glorified body of Christ. But there is a time for us when the soul is separate from the body and the body decomposes. Okay. For the Lord Jesus, that is not that is not the case. It's not the case because the body, right, was the body of the Son of God. And because the Son of God is sinless, the body did not undergo corruption as ours would. So one would say, after three days, wasn't there going to be a stench? The answer is opening the grave. The answer of the Lord Jesus is no, there would not be because his body is incorrupt, because it's divine. It's the, it's the body of the divine person. All right. So that's one thing that you, you, to, to reflect on. And again, as I've said before, our connection with the body of Christ, once risen, flows to us through the Eucharist, which is a participation in the glorified body, blood, soul, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Right? Okay. So in this moment when Jesus's body, human, human soul was separated from the human body, the body remained incorrupt and the soul descended into what we want to call the abode of the dead. We would say it's Hades. We could say it's hell, right? And there is a fundamental truth here too. And that is before the coming of the incarnation, and the pivotal moment of salvation in his death and resurrection, there was no judgment of the dead. Okay. The judgment only comes through Jesus Christ. Hmm. But once Christ entered into the abode of the dead, that was the moment when those who were sleeping in the sleep of Christ right, would have received either the reward of a righteous life or the condemnation of an evil life. So in a sense, we speak of the beatific vision, right? When we enter into the glory, we are able to see the face of God, the blessed beatific vision of God. If you recall in the Old Testament, it was said, no one could see the face of God and live. And in this life, you could not. But so when Jesus entered into the abode of the dead, in that, in that period when it was, he went in, right, as the divine person with the human soul, because the human body had separated, right, was still in the tomb. Everyone who had died before was deprived of the vision of God. But it wasn't the equivalent, right, of what we now will say, in the judgment before Christ can either be the beatific vision of heaven, 
the state of purgation to enter into heaven or condemnation, right? Eternal condemnation, right? So his descent among the dead, right? Even before his resurrection within history was that moment when, in a sense, everybody else catched up. They all caught up, right? They all caught up. And in a sense, it raises another interesting fact, and that is, is everybody who is saved, ultimately saved in the name of Jesus? And the one word answer to that question is yes, right? The scripture says clearly, there is no name, there is no other name by which we are saved than that of Jesus. So from, from the beginning of creation, to the moment of his death and his entrance into the sent among the dead, everyone who lived before had that moment of standing before the judge, who is Jesus, right, in his father, and received the, the fruits of their life. And that is essentially different from those who lived after Jesus because they had no possibility of knowing the Savior. He wasn't born yet. Right. Yes. <laughs> right? So they live by the the light of their natural reason. They live faithfully to the covenant that God revealed. They lived to whatever uh, elements of truth existed in other parts of the world that were not part of God's chosen people. Whatever it was that pointed them to God if they were faithful, I presume would have been sufficient, right? Also presuming they would need purgation too, right? Like we will. At least I will. I don't know about you, Steve, but I certainly will. Okay. All right. So then when the resurrection occurs, that's the dividing point. That is when the new creation in heaven and earth is born, right? That is when the gates of heaven, we say, the gates of heaven were opened to all who believe in him. That is both an historic and transcendent, transcendental event. And we're going to talk a little bit about, I think, what that means. Well, let's pause for a second. Does this make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. You know, and one of the things I was thinking is, um, gosh, some of those people had to wait hundreds of years, but actually, no, they didn't because there's no time. <laughs> right, exactly. So, thousands, Moses, thousands. Yeah. Right. But thousands on what side of the equation? Because on that side, right, there, there is the one moment, right, when you enter into, right, which okay. is, again, makes, gives me a headache when I try to figure out what that actually means. But, <laughs> right. right, right, right. So, so true or false? You ready? This yes. is your catechism test. True oh. or false? Is the resurrection an historic event? True. Ah, excellent. A plus. Why? Why? Because, because it actually happened at a point in time in a specific place in history. Correct. It's real and it's historically verified. You may say, ah, historically verified. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Okay. So question number two on the Steve Lee quiz. Uh -oh. <laughs> uh, what are the two historic events, if I could use the word events, two historic occurrences that point to the historicity, the reality of the resurrection that are found in the gospels. Uh, that are found in, in, the, in, the, gospels. in the gospels. Okay. Uh, one is uh, the empty tomb. 
Correct. So let's stop for a second. Okay. Empty tomb. St. Matthew goes to great pains to talk about the fact that a cohort was stationed, a stone was rolled in front of the tomb, right? From the very beginning, there was a narrative that said this was all fabricated, this was all created, that in the end, this was a hoax because they stole the body and he wasn't really dead. Or even if he was dead, they stole the body and they made all this stuff up. And Matthew goes to great pains to say, right? And we just heard it at Palm Sunday, right? A week and a half ago, that it would have been, that narrative would have been worse mm -hmm. than the one about him being put to death. So Rome was a lot of things, my friends, but Rome was not stupid. <laughs> right. Yes. That is why they conquered most of the known Western world. So that it is, an, it, that it is historical that that tomb would have been watched goes without question. Without question. So that's number one. Number two. The fact, therefore, that it is empty and found empty the way the Gospels describe it indicates that something extraordinary happened within history because the cohort couldn't stop it. There's no single human person, either from the inside, who could have moved that stone because those of you who go to the Holy Land, you will see replicas, right, and existing tombs where the stone is gigantic. So does the empty tomb in and of itself prove the historical truth of the resurrection? The answer to that is no. On its own, it does not. But that if it shows the, the historical context within which the second piece of the puzzle makes sense. Yeah, it does. And given everything I just described, in and of itself is extraordinary. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. And the other, of course, is? I would say, um, I, well, there are two things that come to mind, Excellency. One is mm -hmm. that St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that 500 people saw Jesus after he rose, mm -hmm. 500. Mm -hmm. And he was basically mm -hmm. like, you know some of these people, so you can go check with them. Mm -hmm. uh, so in a sense, it's the appearances of Jesus. Yes. It's the appearances of Jesus. Appearance to Mary Magdala. Appearance to the apostles in the upper room. Appearance the second time with Thomas present. The appearance to to um, the 500, the appearance to Paul on the way to Damascus, all right? This is either, all right, again, there's an error that says, these people are hallucinating. They're all hallucinating. Well, I, I guess there's such a thing as group hysterics, but in an age where the person you are supposedly imagining is gonna get you killed, what would be the incentive Honestly, what would be the incentive to say, oh, yeah, I saw this risen Jesus. Now kill me. Yep. Like, arrest me. <laughs> I mean, if you look at it just even from a counter-cynical point of view, it would make no sense for people to lie about something, particularly the large group that you're referring right. to. Right. Yeah. It, it, it just wouldn't make sense. It's no different than, for example, in the last miracle of the sun in Fatima, when you had tens of thousands of people see the miracle covered in the newspaper. I, that's not mass hysteria. Yeah. <laughs> they saw a miracle. So the same is here. Yes. But let's go deeper though. Okay. So from a theological point of view, so the Lord appears 
which is the second half of what I'm going to call the historic manifestation, the manifestation of the resurrected Christ, event and person within history, within history. The preparation of the body, we talked about that already. And the care that was taken there. The fact that the Lord chose to reveal himself to women first. Mm -hmm. We could spend an entire podcast breaking that open. Because they were the least likely group to be believed. Yes. They were the least likely group to be given a hearing in any of the halls or rooms of authority, religious, secular, civil, in both Judea, um, Jerusalem, and the Roman Empire. And yet one would have to ask, why did they see? Why did Mary Magdala see the Lord when chances are there were others in that garden visiting other deceased relatives and they did not? And that points to the uniqueness of the resurrected Jesus. The uniqueness being, this is not resuscitated life. This is not Lazarus or the daughter of Jairus coming back from the dead to die a second time. This is a new life with continuity in history, but a profoundly different reality because it is the manifestation of his glory in that body, resurrected, that we will share. So it is conceivable that if you don't have the eyes of faith, then you can be standing in front of the Lord and not recognize it's the Lord. And if you have the eyes of faith, you can. Yes. How is that different from going to adoration and with the eyes of faith recognizing the presence of Christ in the Eucharist and someone who does not? And then the answer is, what's wrong? The Eucharist or the person who, and what he brings to the experience? Yes. yes. What's missing here? Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right? So I think the very fact that the women were the ones who were chosen is precisely part of the divine genius of the appearances at the resurrection. Because this is not meant to be an historic proof simply so that you will be forced to believe that the channels of faith are going to come in the most unlikely places, right? And then, of course, Peter went in, then John went after, then the, the, the Lord appeared to the apostles. So Pope Francis picks up a, t- a title from the ancient fathers that calls Mary Magdala the apostle to the apostles. Because was she not the one who went to the apostles? Yes. Right? Did they believe initially? The, that's why no. they had to run out to see. <laughs> Right. And then their eyes were able to see. Yeah. Right. And then they become the proclaimer of the kerygma. So Easter is the fundamental, the crowning truth of our faith, as the catechism says, because that's the kerygma. Yes. That those who die in Christ and are buried with Christ will rise to new life in Christ. So you die to your sins and are buried sent among the dead, so that you rise to the new life that's Christ through adoption and baptism. And therefore, the apostles don't actually come to the apostolic fervor until they receive a share in the very Holy Spirit, which is also the spirit of the risen Lord. Yes. That is given to us. Yep. Right? It's amazing. 
Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Excellent. Don't, don't you think it's kind of funny? Jesus kept telling his, his disciples ahead of time that he was going to be put to death and that he was going to rise on the third day. Like he said mm-hmm. it more than once. Mm-hmm. And it was like he was uh, giving them almost like a heads up. Mm-hmm. And then and then come Sunday morning, the third day, none of the apostles were like, oh, wait a minute. Jesus said he was going to rise on the third day. I wonder mm-hmm. if instead they were just like they were mm-hmm. hiding and they had forgotten all of it. Well, I think if I spoke to you in if Betty, if you spoke to me in Korean, I would smile, <laughs> but have not a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. Why do I I, I say that? Yeah. Is because when Jesus spoke to them about this. Right. This was the preamble. This was the prophecy of the charisma. They were hotwired in their religious imagination, in their upbringing from when they were infants, not to be able. There was no reference there, not, not that they were not able, but there was no reference in their religious imagination or training to even understand what that could mean. Mm. Remember, the fundamental insight of Judaism is, right, there's, there's the Lord, the, the Deuteronomy, right? Right. There's the one God, and he is the one to whom we honor mind, heart, soul. And he is transcendent to us. He sends the prophets, but he doesn't come. So there is, remember the rich man, the last one, even if somebody rises from the dead, they won't even believe that. I mean, it, it, I think we shouldn't be too hard on the apostles for that reason, because it is so out of the realm of what they ever could ever have imagined. They probably said, chalk this up to another one that we have no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) Okay. But then when they saw him, they began, began to believe, although they doubted. And when the spirit came, then the doubts have been sealed, have been healed. And part of it, was what does it mean to rise from the dead? What does it mean? So if we're talking about, therefore, the human soul of Jesus reunites with the human body in this glorified reality that is both in history and out of history, that it's in this reality and it is transcendent to this reality. So we could eat and we could be standing in front of you and you would not recognize me and then immediately recognize me, right? You can touch him, touch, but I could walk through locked doors. Mm. I've never had an experience of that, <laughs> right? But when they begin to see that it's really Jesus. See, so let's go back to everything we've talked about with anthropology. If Jesus did not bodily rise, then would it really have been Jesus rising? Right. And the same is true for us. Then I think they began to say, oh my gosh, so that's what he meant. Hmm. Yes. Right. Huh? So it's old properties and new properties. Old properties, you could eat, you could touch them. New properties, you walk through walls, you're not always recognized. So it's just, yeah. as I said to you, it gives me a good headache to try to figure out, well, what is... What is heaven going to be, this glorified life? What is it going to look? Will I be able to see 
my mother and father with my own eyes? And the answer to that is yes, but not these eyes. Hmm. There won't be a limited sight. It'd be more of a sight of awareness that you will be with them, know them, but there isn't a physical reality alone, but there's almost, um, it's a new creation again in Christ. Yeah. It just, it fascinates me. And these days now, since Easter, spring cleaning begins. That's my ritual this week, yeah. spring cleaning. <laughs> I spent a couple of days at the apartment in Brooklyn. All the windows get washed, all that stuff. It's just tradition. All the drapes get washed, all that stuff. Right. I, I, and I'm very happy to, you know, to do it as a service for others, as fundraiser, <laughs> house cleaning. Watch out. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I just, and I love it because it's manual labor and you get lost. And then I just think about all these things. And, and um, it's such the, de- the depth and breadth and the beauty yeah. of what we believe in. Right. I love, as you're, as you're talking, Excellency, uh, gosh. So it's like, you know, you said, well, maybe they, they heard, but they just didn't understand. And then when they saw him resurrected, they understood. And it just reminds me of when, when Lazarus died and Martha confronted Jesus. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, right? Whoever believes in me will never die. And she was probably like, great, what does that mean? And then here we go. He resurrects and he physically shows them that death doesn't separate us doesn't have the last word. Yeah. Remember the Pharisees and Sadducees had this big controversy over the resurrection of the dead. One believed it, one did not. What's interesting is the resurrection of the dead in Jewish circles at the time, what did it actually mean to rise from the dead? And my hunch is it was much more of a spiritual reality. And I could stand corrected on that. But for Christ... It is both a body and spiritual reality because that is who we are Yeah, in him. Did, did you ever hear, this is how I remember uh, who believed in the resurrection of the dead and who did not because it was the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection of Correct. the dead. And that's why they were sad, you see. Oh, it's time for a break. All right. <laughs> okay, it's time for a break. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. So on that note, um, yeah, let's let's take a break. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. We'll be back minus the cheesy dad jokes. <laughs> if you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. 
You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Excellency, thank you for that amazing reflection on, um, on Easter. I know one of the things that, uh, that our listeners love to hear is um, you know, how you celebrated Easter when you were younger and uh, throughout your life. And so tell us about some of the traditions from, that you still carry from the Caggianos. Yeah, well, before we do those, let's get let's do the American ones. Okay, because because you know we kind of we we allowed some of them to infiltrate right into our lives, but but generally speaking, if you go to the pharmacy, you go to uh, you know the dollar store, and you look at their Easter section, what do you see? Eggs and bunnies. Okay, so let's talk about both of those. Okay. Where did they come from? The bunny. Why a bunny? Because they're furry and cute. Uh, yeah, I have. I have no, <laughs> they have nothing to do with eggs either. Now that I think about it, it's no, well. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. Right, but but I've always heard. I've always heard that the explanation of the rabbit was because it gives life. It procreates so prolifically as a little animal. Okay, and therefore it's the whole idea of giving life. But I stumbled upon this, which is very interesting. It says that, according to some sources, historical sources, in America, the idea of an Easter bunny came in the 1700s. It came with German immigrants who settled in Pennsylvania. And there was the tradition of, believe it or not, an egg-laying hare (laughs) called Osterhaus. (laughs) Now... And supposedly, these children made nests for these egg-laying hares because they would lay colored eggs. (laughs) And then the custom just became secularized because, you know, Hallmark and whoever else can make uh, Cadbury and all the rest of them could make money off it. Right. So it does have a quasi-mythical, but again, it's all about the life, right? It's the giving of life. So the egg itself has always been a symbol of life, right? Because the chick breaks out of it. Sure. It's even pagans had that in ancient times, right? Of course, it also symbolizes the tomb of Jesus Christ Hmm. and the breaking open of the tomb. Mm -hmm. And that is why from the 13th century in Europe, Easter eggs were decorated because we were celebrating, right, the Jesus breaking forth from the shell of the tomb. But there's another thing, too, which I stumbled upon as I was doing some research, which I did not know. And that is, there's another tradition, and that goes to the Lenten fast. Because the Lenten fast, right, in its more severe forms over the ages was all meat and meat products, So all dairy, 
So you were not allowed to have milk, cheese, or eggs. Hmm. And so therefore, eggs were, were decorated in anticipation of being able to eat them again for all the other reasons I gave, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the fast, which would have been, right, Holy Saturday afternoon, right? When the vigil was at noontime, right? So it's, it's, it's remarkable how, and of course, now we have Easter eggs and rolls and Easter egg hunts and all this, but it's a shame that none of this is being talked about yeah. with our kids. And I think those who are listening, it would be great to be able to sit down with kids and not bemoan the fact that there are Easter bunnies <laughs> in the pharmacy, but just explain what, what their Christian meaning could be right. for these, right? For these young people. Yes. Right? Yes. What about Easter candy? Are you a big connoisseur of candy, by the way? Uh, I, I like it. Um, not as much as my kids do, but... Yes, I stand with your kids. <laughs> <laughs> Someone has to stand with them. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of candy do you like, Excellency? Oh, whatever you got. It doesn't matter. <laughs> if it's sweet, I'll eat it. Oh, without a doubt. Chocolate. Um, I love chocolate. Don't please nobody send me chocolate because <laughs> I'm already fat. But I'm just reminiscing here in a perfect world in heaven, we can eat chocolate forever. <laughs> All right. So, you know, it's a fact that the holiday that has the most candy sold in the United States is? Is it Easter? Nope. Halloween. Halloween. Yes. Easter is number two. Okay. All right. And where'd the jelly bean come from? <laughs> Uh, it look like rabbit pellets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I'm never going to have one again. <laughs> oh my Lord. <laughs> oh, that's going to be burned in my mind. <laughs> no, no, the egg shape. Oh yeah, right. eggs. yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> we call them beans, but they're not. Do you know, there's a statistic I ran across in the United States this coming year. There will be 16 billion jelly beans. Yep. Oh my bought. goodness. For Easter, which means if you put them all in one giant egg, the egg would be 89 feet high and 60 feet wide. <laughs> Could you imagine being thrown into that? <laughs> yeah. The most delicious. And, and what, and, uh, yeah. Again, so it's the whole idea. And then what about the. And this, I honestly don't know what the, if there's any Christian connection. But the when I was growing up, the candy we associated with Easter was the little peeps. Oh yeah! Oh, I do like those. Yeah, the little peeps, and they and they used to be, and they're all sugar. Basically, they're sugar. It's all it is: marshmallow and sugar. So, what child would not want those? <laughs> But they were also made in the first time in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has all this stuff going on. Oh. It's amazing. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yep. A Russian immigrant. And he created them in, in the 1950s. And the original ones were handmade, marshmallow flavored, and only in yellow. Huh. Now they come in all, all these different colors, yes. blue, purple, all the rest of yes. them. Yes. Right? So, and of course, they're chicks. And that's... the coming out of the tomb. So in a, in a strange sort of way, one could say it's kind of like reminiscent of the Lord coming out of the tomb, but I mean, it's a bit of a stretch. Now, two other things that I find interesting. Being a New Yorker, former New Yorker, I should say, the Easter parade. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that? 
I didn't even know there was one actually. In New York City, there is one okay. famous. It started in the mid 1800s. And what was it? It was in its, in its, in its nation form. It was the height of vanity. So on the strip of Fifth Avenue, so you have St. Patrick's, you have, what is it, St. Thomas, you have, you know, basically the upper crust of society on Easter in the 19th century. After their services or mass was over, they would walk up and down Fifth Avenue for no other reason than to show off their Easter outfit. Particularly for the women, not only their outfit, but their hats, because in those days, men and women wore hats, right? right? Yes. All the time. And the, the ordinary middle class and working class uh, finally said to themselves, well, it's good enough for them. It's good enough for us. So they began to go first to watch and then to participate. And it led to what has now become a, a very old tradition in New York. Hmm. Now, I'm not sure if there are other places that do it, but in New York, and it still goes, and people wear their bonnets, but now they wear some crazy stuff too. I mean, it's, and then like everything else, it's becoming yeah. politicized and all the rest. But it's, but it does raise a question, and maybe I'm being a little controversial here, but what the heck? Let's <laughs> be frank here. <laughs> what did any of us? listening to me today, where at Easter Sunday to Mass? Did we actually, considering what we talked about for the first half, giving real consideration to the enormity of what we're celebrating, did we put on our best? Did we really dress up in a real beautiful way? Right? Not to show off, but for the for for to celebrate with the Lord the importance yes right, of what that is, I just think it's something to think about. The Lord welcomes us all the time in any way in any way we come, but it's our gift to Him by showing Him what our best is. Because if it's good enough for my aunt Tilly who's getting married, and it's good enough for my aunt Esmeralda whose uh, uh, whose granddaughter is being baptized or is having a sweet 16 or has just won a, a race or is getting a trophy, why would it not be good enough for our Lord and Savior? Right? Amen. And for the Easter parade, by the way, it's on 5th Avenue between 49th and 57th Street. So next Easter, you want to go? <laughs> okay. It's the height of people watching. I'll wear my best bonnet. Exactly. <laughs> now, uh, where did the lamb come from? Oh, Easter lamb. Tell me. From Passover? Ah, speak, speak, explain. Yes. Yep. So, uh, I mean, because that was the Passover, uh, that was the Paschal meal, mm -hmm. Passover, and you had to sacrifice the lamb, um, mm -hmm. an unblemished lamb, and mm -hmm. uh, and then consume it fully. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that's what they were celebrating uh, on Holy Thursday. And mm -hmm. Jesus is our Paschal lamb. Right, right. And instead of having the blood of the lamb put on the doorposts, right, in the offering of his blood, we have been redeemed once. And we enter into that mystery in the holy sacrifice of the mass. So we call Jesus the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. So that is a very clear, easy connection. Yes. But the other thing, too, is why lilies at Easter? Well, 
the only uh, lilies i only know them to be a sign of uh innocence because they're white mm-hmm. yeah the interesting thing is the same thing is true of tulips and that is lilies and tulips are born from bulbs that are buried deep into the ground and come forward in life that could be true of other plants as well tulips are perennials I don't think lilies are, except in their native places. Mm. Like here, they certainly would. It's too cold to mm. be here. But what I did not know is lilies actually are native to Japan. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the first ones were brought to England in 1777. And they came to the United States after World War One, And in the participation of, of the United States in World War One. And, and now they have become like, I, I can't imagine a church not having some lilies at Easter, yeah. right? I mean, it's just, yeah. right? It's right. interesting because you see pictures, uh, paintings of St. Joseph and of St. I think Anthony, each holding mm-hmm. lilies. I guess mm-hmm. the, that tradition of them holding those lilies is only 300 years old, I guess. No, not necessarily. Well, could be. That I honestly don't know. But even if it were the case it would have been, it would have not necessarily been associated with Easter, right? So the association with Easter would have come through England to the United States after World War One. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. And of course, there's different types of lilies too, huh. right? Yeah, and I'm not, oh, listen, I'm not no expert, but there are different types of lilies. Next time we get together, I can give you some of those. I could do some more research. There are, right? Like the ones that drop down that look like a little bell. And then the other one, like, was that color lilies or whatever? Anyway, huh? That, that's that's outside my purview. You got to find another podcast <laughs> to talk about that. Your, your expertise is Easter candy. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Chocolate is my is my speciality. So, in a sense, I, I mention all this because we lost the symbolism of Halloween mm-hmm. to the secular world, yes. which was once a, and still is, All Hallows' Eve. You've heard me say that more than once. Yes. We lost the secular attachments to Christmas, right? Lost meaning that the secular world has, has an understanding of it that will be very hard to dislodge. Right. But we have to try. Easter, I get the sense it's not as much. In which case, we should use this opportunity to usurp back these, what I'm going to call secular symbols, and give them a real religious significance. Yes. Again. Yep. So that people will be reminded of the Lord Jesus when they go to Rite Aid and they see all of these eggs, they should immediately see the tomb of Christ. Yes. Or the little rabbits and say, a symbol of life, right? Right. And chocolate, they should say, let's send it to Bishop Frank. <laughs> no, I mean, let's... <laughs> no, no. <laughs> right. You see what I mean? It's, it's, it would be, it, it, I don't think that we're at that point where everybody understands them I just people just I don't think they they think about it. So let's take the narrative back. Is my point? Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the customs for Easter. What about yourself, Steve? 
you know, so I, yeah, uh, I don't, I don't remember any specific customs growing up and you know, my dad listens. And so he could <laughs> correct me. Oh, he's going to be, he's going to send the questions exactly. now Good for him. But I, you know, <laughs> what I do remember very strongly about growing up um, on Easter Sunday is we always dressed in our best, you know, jackets uh-huh. and ties for my brother and me and mm-hmm. everybody dressed mm-hmm. up. And I guess my strongest memory of Easter is always just my family being together, dressing up, and um, it just it just felt different and special. Even if, like, as a young kid, I didn't really understand everything that was, you know, right. at stake right. here. Um, right, right, right. Uh, what I remember from Easter, we've talked about this also. the The two things that are more vivid in my memory now. One is the smell of Easter. You may say, what are you talking about? <laughs> <clears throat> because in, when I was a little boy, we had a wooden church. And the wooden church retained a lot of those smells. When you would walk in Easter Sunday morning, the smell of the flowers particularly the lilies, oh, wow. was like overwhelming. As I said to you, it, 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 it's funny. I, I'm only recollecting that now because I tied it together with the smell of roses when I kissed the tomb of Jesus. Huh. And I've shared that story. Yes. But in preparation for this, because I knew we were going to talk about memories, out of the blue, this other memory came up and I had not ever connected them together before. So that's one thing that even now, unbeknownst to me, every time I'm given a lily, like for example, people are very kind and they send them to the office. The very first thing I do is take them in my arms and smell them. And I and that must have been a pre-conscious or an unconscious act on my part. And only now I'm realizing wow. that in a way, whether I realized it or not, I was trying to relive that experience of boyhood. Yeah. Wow. Right? The other thing that's come to mind is when my father was alive, right after Easter is when he would tend the garden front and back, meaning take all of what was left over from winter, all the leaves left over from the fall, the few that were there, the branches that fell off the trees. He would turn over the soil. He would not plant, but he would get everything ready. And there was, and same in the back, because in the back he would plant his tomatoes, his cucumbers, his string beans, his parsley, his basil, the small little tomatoes in the back. And in the front, my mother would do her things. And I've spoken about that, right? But what I never considered until this podcast is how that connects to the garden. The one garden connects to the other garden of the resurrected Lord. And I'm not sure my father understood that, but that's the power of faith. The power of faith does not have to be always cognitive. But somewhere deep down inside, in his religious imagination, he must have intuited this is the time... This is the time to work on the garden. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Wow. And every year he did it until he died. Wow. In fact, he did it the year he died because he died on the Friday 
of Easter week. So the, the day before the Divine Mercy weekend. So when my mother and I and my, myself and my nephew were up in Pennsylvania, when we came back on that Friday, he had done the garden. I remember distinctly that he had done it. And one of the last things he did before he died. Isn't it, isn't it so good of God to, you, you never made that connection when you were younger. No. And now you make no. the connection. It's like another, another tie to your father all these years later. Yeah. And it gives me consolation of the state of, of his life before God. Right. In a way it's our relationship with God is more that is more than that, which we can express in words. And then sometimes our words are sinful. Sometimes our actions are sinful, but there's a deeper part of us that may not necessarily be as tainted as the parts we immediately recognize. Yes. That's the deep goodness of God. Yeah. Hmm? Amazing. Mm-hmm. So we're in Easter week. So this is my traditional week of not being in the office. Christmas week and Easter week, I'm not in the office. So now that most of my spring cleaning is done, now we have to plow ahead with all our projects that have been sitting on my desk for four months. (laughs) I dust around them every week. It's time to, so (laughs) sacramental guidelines and norms, the next steps in the one, uh, all these pilots from the scene. We have lots to talk about when we come back in the coming weeks. Mm -hmm. You know, I... Um, I, I just, it occurs to me because, uh, th- this past Sunday, Easter Sunday was, uh, Rula's birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but it just occurs to me also, uh, excellency that, um, with that, mm-hmm. I'd never wished you a happy birthday a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> so. Thank you. We, we, we don't allude to birthdays anymore. <laughs> the, the numbers, the numbers are too high. <laughs> 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 Unless you're going to give me counseling or something. Right. <laughs> well, actually, not at all. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm 64 years old. Yes. One year away from becoming a burden on the national budget. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And rightfully so, because we all paid into that. Everybody who's of age, we paid into that fund. Yes. Right? Yep. But I don't feel 64. Yeah. Not in the least. Yeah. Is that, even though I joke about it, but I really don't. No, I mean, you look great. You're, you're super strong. Well preserved. <laughs> you know, sixty-four a long time ago used to mean something different than it does today. Oh, it does. Yeah, it does. It does. But I think in the end, what keeps you young, in part, of course, is healthy eating, healthy living, being prudent about the excesses of life. But also what keeps you young is having a purpose and mission. Yes. Something that gets you up out of bed every day and say, yeah, I'm going to, yeah, this, yeah, this is what I want to do. And I think part of, and we can talk about this too in a future podcast. I, you know, for people who are high powered executives who, you know, contemplate retiring, you can't go from a thousand miles an hour to zero. You just can't do that. Yep. And I think a lot of people more and more who are ready to retire in their 60s are finding the avocation that they can be passionate about to keep going. Yes. Right? Yep. 
So that you may be right. downshifting, but you're not stopping altogether. Yeah, and shifting gears altogether. So now it's a time almost in your life when you can give back in a way that you couldn't because you were busy raising your children and providing for them and their education, all the rest, which could be a fortune. Right. But now it's 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 you can give back with all your expertise and and that gets you up in the morning and keeps you young. Yes. Right? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which actually, so we talked about this too, and we should talk about it uh, again in the future, is that that people who are on that side of life have so much to offer, especially to younger people that we can learn from. I said we. Mm-hmm. I said younger, and then I said we. <laughs> well, yeah, you are younger. <laughs> You're younger. No, no, but yes, yes. And I, and I think from my perspective, they can witness to the faith in a powerful way for our young people, to your point, but also they can share their expertise to the church, with the church. Yes. Because they have a lifetime of professional accomplishment that in 10 lifetimes I wouldn't have. Yeah. And quite frankly, I don't want, because if I wanted it, I would have been a business person. Right. I want to be a pastor. Right. So why, if these people can have, and I can think of a few, and I don't want to embarrass them on the podcast, but they've come and taken over organizations in our diocese. They've taken over uh, offices in our diocese. They've just made a tremendous yeah. difference. Oh my God, they're just tremendous yep. difference. That's yeah. for sure. I think we're going to have one of them on a future show too. Oh, yes. Good. All right. So um, let's take our final break and come back with a listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Be right back. Hey, it's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. All right, Excellency, um, here's here's, uh, this week's question. It says, Bishop Caggiano, when did you know that God was calling you to the priesthood? Are there specific signs that I should look for that will let me know if I should be a priest or if I should get married? Wow, what a great question. Uh, we've talked about this too. I think in the end for myself, there were the voices in my life, early voices, my mother, the sisters of St. Dominic, some of my teachers, the Jesuit fathers. Many of them would, had put that idea in my mind in the sense of, have you ever considered then it was the voice in my own heart when I would pray. And, and, you know, many a Saturday when I was at Regis and, and it was just, the pressure was just so enormous to get all this work done, even on the weekends, that many a Saturday I would wind up in church for a half hour, an hour, and just sit in the quiet of the church. And that's when the, the, the voice, if I may say it, the sense, the intuition, the prompting. Anyway, and then it had to be verified, right? by others. So that's one way, but the Lord speaks. Mm -hmm. He speaks to us. He speaks to others around us. So my suggestion to whoever wrote this question is you need a spiritual guide. You need to have someone with whom you can speak because we could easily miss. I did miss for a very long time, those voices, what they were saying. And then you will, he will, he will help you if it's a priest to, to discern those voices. And then you'll have a clear idea over time. Mm-hmm. That's great. So if you have a question for Bishop Frank, you can send it in on social media or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
and so is Veritas Catholic Network. And we'd like to thank Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Happy Easter, Excellency. My friend, happy Easter to you too. Let's pray, shall we? Yes. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Together we pray and glorify our risen Lord in these words. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, man. Thank you, Steve. Enjoy the week. Thanks, Excellency. Okay, all the best. Ciao.